Uh, you should go by Casper. Okay. It's more distinct, and there's like 20 mats in my work. Yeah. Yeah. And he's part ghost. <laughs> and I'm part ghost, and we get all the wonderful ghost jokes. There's um, there's a Matthew in Rails as well, so there are too many mats in open source. So <laughs> yeah, so it'll just be Casper. E too many mats. So for those who haven't picked up on it, we're joined by by Matt Casper today. Hello. You uh, contributed a lot to Diesel in the very, very early days. I think you were like the third person to submit a, co- uh, a commit or something like that. I think so. Yeah, I, you know, I heard about it on this podcast. I had recently gotten into Rust, and Sean's bar for contributions was really, really low at that point. <laughs> so I hopped on and just started doing easy stuff. I mean, you kind of made CLI a thing. Yeah, because that was the easiest part. <laughs> it's it's definitely nowadays the part that is getting the least attention because it's like. I mean, we have a bunch of stuff that we want to fix, but, like, it kind of works, and it's, like... <laughs> what does the CLI do? As um, somebody who doesn't use diesel. Right. It, uh, <laughs> it does things like generate and run migrations, right. set up databases. We also have a macro that you can use called Infer Schema, uh, which is the, at compile time goes and loads up your database schema and defines all the things in Rust that map one-to-one with that. And uh, it's a procedural macro, and um, in particular, it still is a type of procedural macro that's not necessarily fully supported by rust and we have to do some hacky stuff anyway there are some people who don't want to use that macro but still writing out all of the schema by hand is a pain in the ass so we had a thing to cli that just prints out what the code would would have expanded to Mm -hmm. cool i think there's another feature that somebody added recently but i don't remember what it does so how did you so you said you heard about diesel on the podcast did you know much rust at the time or i didn't really um the company i worked for needed a small service that just stores some data and serves up in an api And I was in such a position that I could choose whatever language I wanted to write it in. So I chose Go because that was the cool thing at the time. I wrote it in Go. (laughs) And I showed it to my boss. And he was like, have you heard of Rust? Because uh, the cool thing at that point was Ruby Rust Interopt. So already you started writing it and Go was the cool thing. Uh, By the time you finished writing it... (laughs) Which was like not very long. Yeah, like there two days. New, there was a new cool. Then thing. Rust was the cool thing. Okay. So, yeah. I, hold on. I just want to clarify one thing too, because you know, there's the meme of Rust people go around saying, "Have you, why don't you rewrite this in Rust?" So did your boss just literally say, "Have you considered rewriting it in Rust?" <laughs> he didn't say the word rewrite. He did say, "Have you considered Rust?" Okay. Um, so I locked myself in a room, rewrote that in Rust, and that was how I got introduced. And then basically at that point, Sean had done that first project uh, converting one of your client apps to rest from C++. Kind of, yeah. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> and then you were talking about diesel, and I was thinking, man, I need to get into open source contributions. I want to get into a major, some major thing. And so it was a good fit. I got to learn some more Rust from Sean. I got to contribute, asked a lot of really stupid questions, got them answered. <laughs> so no, I didn't know all that much Rust. <laughs> <laughs> so are you guys still using uh, Rust for any, any stuff beyond just that one project? Just that so far. Uh, oh, no, never mind. I'm a complete liar. We've got a couple different like database monitoring scripts that are running in Rust. Um, oh. We wanted them to be really lightweight because they're running on our production database server. So mm-hmm. um, wrote those in Rust because I had the choice. Other than that, I don't, there aren't too many people at my work using Rust at the moment. Okay. So. Are you still choosing it when you have the choice? Or did the, did the project convince you, like, eh, maybe this needs a little more time? <laughs> no, I, I still love it. I don't contribute to Diesel all that much anymore. Life got in the way, but sure. I want to get back into it. Um, and I, I still love Rust. I've got a bunch of side projects in Rust that I've actually been cleaning up here at this conference because 
Just been thinking about it. That's so. what you do at RailsConf. Yeah. <laughs> you clean up random side <laughs> you projects. You hear more about Rails, and you're like, oh, man, i got to get away from this thing. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it has been interesting watching Diesel, because like, with the baby, I've had to step back. And I tried really hard early on to start uh, attracting a lot of contributors and try and set up a ecosystem where it wasn't my project. It was the, the team's project. And you know, I, I barely have time to check Gitter these days. Uh, and it's at the point where it's getting... Some days it'll get over 100 messages coming in. And it's been interesting just to watch the project take on a life of its own and sort of continue as I have other priorities I have to focus on. Yeah, there are like three or four other core like core maintainers right now. Yeah, and then one guy on who's who's been very involved lately and is kind of on that path as well. Nice. Yeah, but when I first started contributing to it, I don't think I had like the Rust knowledge to really dive into the type system and the yeah. kind of the crazy stuff that's at the core of it. So I tackled the CLI because it's like, oh, that's easy. You just shell out and run some stuff and print out some helpful words and then you're done. <laughs> uh, so that was an easy way to get into it. Well, it's interesting too, trying to manage that because to attract contributors, right, you do have to have the code base that's approachable. And I knew Diesel was going to be a project that would be used by people who are newer to Rust, um, at, at least for a large percentage. And I also had a, had a hunch that for contributors, it was going to be attracting a lot of people who were newer to Rust as well. I mean, some of that's going to be true no matter what, just because Rust is, is such a young language and is growing so quickly. But... Mm. Um, you know, there are the, the, the parts of it that are definitely really complex. It's been interesting trying to manage that. For a while, my strategy was move as much of the complexity as possible into code gen because nobody was going to touch code gen other than me anyway. So that way I could sort of sweep it under the rug and leave a significant portion of the code base that has as little complexity as possible and is as approachable as possible. And yeah, it's been slowly shifting in the other direction now that I think everything's a, a more established enough that we can start to document here's how everything works and even if you're not familiar with with how this type system works we can more easily onboard people um i feel like i had a point i was going to but i don't remember what it was so well, i was i mean i have one commit to diesel and i can't remember what it is you I added had, uh like not in or something like that something like that yeah i didn't know any rust other than like i went through like the beginnings of the rust book that steve wrote yeah steve klabnik and uh like it was okay. Like the tooling is familiar because Yehuda. Yeah. Uh, so like it was fine. And then like I think I needed. Did I need? I can't remember if I was like. Do I need a Rust version manager? Do I need like what do I need to do here? <laughs> that that but, is like, like the default way to install Rust now is right. a thing called Rust up. Right. Is... And so like I think I was. I think that was like coming along as I was getting involved. And then like it was pretty quick into like okay, I understand now. Like I have an error from the compiler, and I understand that I need to fix this error. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the question is like, where, where do I fix this? But it was, it's just really nice. Like, you know, I had the same experience when I did a little bit of Elm work. Just, it's just nice to have, like, I can start this change anywhere. Like I wrote the test cause it needed a, like a high level feature test. Yeah. And then like the test failed and then I got the compiler error and it was like, all right, great. I'm on my way. And then like, I never had to write a different test. You know? Compilers lend themselves really well to TDD. I've noticed just because you do like, First, you make the test compile, and that's actually funny how many times, like, I can't actually come up with a way to make the test compile but fail. Right. <laughs> um. Yeah, I think that scenario, I wrote the test, it failed to compile, then I tried to, like, make it compile, it failed to compile for a different reason, and then, like, by the end, when you're like, yep, I wired all this up, as soon as it compiles, you know that test is going to pass. Yeah. Like, yeah. Because the types are right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, especially for like implementing a new operator or something like that. Basically, the only thing you could do to make it fail at runtime is, you know, we do have the, you will have that one function that has the side effects in the, in the query builder and you can leave that empty because it's just a side effecting function. So it's kind of untyped. 
to a certain extent. And you but, could get you could get the logic wrong, right? I could yes. make not in equivalent to in somehow. And oh then, sure. And, well, then... and actually, we did, well, you didn't get the logic wrong, but there was a logic bug in that, and all of the other things that took arrays uh, because we never thought to handle the empty array case, and we were we were generating invalid SQL in that case. Uh, okay. Actually, we weren't even generating invalid SQL. We were attempting to access element zero and crashing. Right. I think the going back to the complexity that you were trying to manage in Diesel, I think the language itself has matured so much even over the what two years that diesel's been around yeah they you know i think they're really focusing on making it really usable and then secondly they're focusing on kind of those crazy internal stuff that you know you had to do um it feels like there are a lot fewer rust hacks inside of the code base now oh absolutely there's a bunch of stuff that's blocked on some changes to the type system. I'm trying to rework joins. That's one of the last things I really want to fix before 1.0 is multi-table joins. Finishing fleshing out the associations API for things like through associations, many-to-many, multiple associations to the same table but with different names, which I still have no clue what that's going to look like, uh, stuff like that. There's a few things that are blocked on changes to the type system, some of which have accepted RFCs or are partially implemented but not stable. Some of them are still pending RFCs, but definitely in terms of just, yeah, hacks. Those are, we have one, it's not even necessarily a hack, but we have the two procedural macros that couldn't be represented with custom derive. And so we have like the little silly nonsense that we do to make it look like a regular bang macro, but it's, it's actually a custom derive under the hood. And there's limitations associated with that. But yeah, the, the Rust team has done a great job of kind of prioritizing the things, at least from my point of view, that, that we needed. Yeah. It's gotten better over the over the last year for sure. Definitely. I thought it was interesting. I wanted to like just because we're at RailsConf, go back to like DHH's keynote yesterday where he was like <laughs> it was a weird keynote, I thought. But anyway, at one point he gets into like like the things we'll never know. Right? Oh, uh, we'll never know if static typing is better than dynamic typing. Right. We can't possibly know this. I feel like we can know this. I feel like we can get data and we can we can reasonably approximate knowing this. We might not be able to know which you prefer. Sure. But we could right. probably tell over time which is better. Like, this is science we can do, close enough to science. Well, I, I love the, the evidence they gave for it, which was just the most BS argument. It was like, we've been arguing this for 30 years. If we have been arguing it for 30 years and haven't come to a conclusion, we're probably never going to. It's just like, you realize type systems have changed a lot in the last 30 years, right? right? Also, he did that immediately after citing how, like, religion kind of had some things going for it. It was like, yeah, it took him longer than 30 years to get there. (laughs) (laughs) For the first third, he made some points that really resonated with me around the right tool for the job doesn't exist. Or even if it does, it doesn't actually matter if the tool that you've chosen is the absolute best tool for the job. Uh, Because the absolute best tool for the job might not be the tool that gets the job done easiest. Yeah, I, I think there's a lot of like paralysis that can come from like I must choose the best thing here. Like he tapped into like, oh, do I want to be like, am I going to be a Ruby developer or am I going to be in a like, which choice am I going to make? And it's like, well, just just do one. And yeah, you can. I mean, in his case, he's not switching back and forth, but you can also just switch back and forth. It'll be okay. Yeah, and there's also <laughs> sort of a fear, like you know, most most people, or I, I guess I shouldn't say this, but if you have a full time job programming, you know, you're probably in one language. And then you kind of, you're seeing all this stuff go by in Hacker News, new languages, new frameworks, new hotness. And you have to kind of, kind of pick, like, well, what side thing am I going to invest in that may be the future? Right. And so I think that's where a lot of the fear of, like, am I wrong? Did I pick the wrong JS framework to invest in? Right. <laughs> uh, it, it's kind of nerve-wracking. Like, yeah, I only have so many hours outside of work to work 
<laughs> so you have to, you feel like there's this weight behind what you're doing outside of work and what you, what you choose to do if you can. And then that's where you, I think that's where your point started to resonate with me. The be boring. Oh yeah. <laughs> you know, a, lot, a lot of the, the quote unquote choice that, that we're making is also just like, because we want to find things that are novel and clever and, and so right. many problems can just be solved in really, really mundane, boring ways. But then we don't get to be cool right. engineering people. And like that's, you know, my point in the talk was like, particularly in your controllers, be boring. Maybe don't innovate in your controllers. <laughs> um, but I, I do think like on a larger scale, when we're, doing, when we're doing projects at ThoughtBot, like we do experiments. Like we try new gems. We try new things. We try different languages. But like we do one of those. Right. Maybe mm. two, like depending on how confident we are about the one that we're doing. Right. But we're in a unique position of like, we get to make those decisions again and again and again. Right. Whereas when you're at like a product company for an extended period of time, you make that decision once. You don't get to go back and be like, let's do this next one in Elixir usually, right? Sometimes something comes along. Like you, you had like the perfect use case of like, we needed this separate service. It was small and nobody particularly cared what it was in. So I got to choose, right? So that works out really well. But a lot of times like you don't, you don't get a second chance. Right. It, well, especially is, in consulting because other people are maintaining it who aren't you or your team. So you have to make sure you're potentially right. that they're able to hire. They have to be uh, the right fit for that. And like, the hiring thing is interesting. Like I wouldn't feel bad about writing an Elixir app for no, somebody. No, sure. Because the hire, the hiring argument somebody. is almost always BS because the, the niche languages and frameworks, it's much easier to hire for because you're one of the only jobs. Right. If, like if we ever got... And like everybody wants this at Thoughtbot, or not everybody, so many people want at Thoughtbot to like write a project in Haskell. Like if we ever got a Haskell project and we wrote it and we had to turn it over to a client who, and they were like, how do we hire? It'd just be like, just say you want to pay somebody to write Haskell. Yeah. And then like, yeah, like it would just be like, you'd have a flood of people who would be like, yes, uh, sure, I'll do it. Uh, 20, $20? All right, let's do it. Yeah. As yeah. opposed to if you, you know, the, one of the downsides if you are choosing Rails and you're trying to hire Rails developers, right, is you now have to differentiate yourself against the thousands of other companies who are also hiring Rails developers. Yeah. Right. And if you're trying to hire for one of those niche languages, you usually get higher quality applicants, too, because those are usually the only people out there actually looking for a job in that language. Right. It's funny because, like, on, on, in some sense, like, Rails is no longer in that, like... You just say you're hiring Rails developers and they'll come. But then, like, when you step out, like, I went to a general tech recruiting event not too long ago, and, like, it was just general tech people looking for jobs, and everybody was like, Rails? Why? What? Like, people knew what it was, but they were like, right. no, I do Java. Like, so many people do Java. I mean, it's really easy to forget how <laughs> yeah. small Ruby's market share is. Like, yes. even, even in the dynamic OO world, right, Python absolutely dominates Ruby. And it's not necessarily everybody's doing Django, but, like, you know, if you go look at Indeed, right, and just compare a bunch of, like, people just forget Ruby's a really small language comparatively. Right. It's not like there's a ton of really good Rails developers out there to fill these jobs, and it's also not like Rails is, like, it's just lost that, like, it's the really cool thing right. to be doing. No, we're doing. not cool so like, We're boring now. So it's, you know, <laughs> it's in, it is still kind of a niche. Like you said, yeah. it's not like a small, a super small niche. It's a large enough niche. And we have people, like, so many boot camps. Like, are there Java boot camps? I don't know that there are. Uh, I mean, like, <laughs> there's definitely PHP boot. There's a PHP boot camp in Albuquerque. Okay. I would assume there's Java ones somewhere. Okay. I mean, all the, all the ones that teach mobile. Android, oh, yeah. Java. Android stuff, yeah. Well, maybe they're teaching Kotlin now because Kotlin's cool and hot, apparently. I don't know if that would be a language you could actually learn as like a brand new developer. I don't know either. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I don't remember where we got started with this, but basically just like, oh, we were talking about DHH's talk and about right. the best tool for the job, right? And I, it's also just, I think people really underestimate the value. 
like two of the big things that Rails brings to the table and will continue to bring to the table no matter how many tools come out and are like, we're better than Rails because X, Y, and Z. The established ecosystem where there's a gem just to do everything that you want and the ease of hiring and swapping out developers because the conventions are so well established at this point in time. Like those are two things that maybe Phoenix will get there over time. Mm-hmm. But like there's a ton of value there that new tools just cannot compete on that front. And I think people really undervalue what that brings to the table in terms of an application. Having gone back and forth now a couple times between like doing a Phoenix project and doing a Rails project, doing a Phoenix project and doing a Rails project, I still really like Phoenix. But to me, it's no longer different enough. Like it, it's cool and I like it. I like doing it, and like I have some. Pre- I have some things I like about it over Rails. I have some things that like I miss when I'm in when I'm in Phoenix that I used to be able to do with Rails. And overall, like I still think if I had to choose one of those two, I'd probably start an app in Phoenix today. But like, it's still like I'm excited about it. But it's just not different enough. It hasn't differentiated. Like to your point, Matt, about like what's the next big thing. And to me, like if that is the next big thing, I'm ar- as a Rails developer, I'm already set up well to just transition over to it. Yeah, yeah. And so like that's not the thing that I should probably be like saying, I'm going to spend all of my free time trying to pick up learning or something like that. Yeah, I've done some, some Phoenix projects as well. And at first I was really excited because like to Sean's point, the ecosystem was a little more sparse in you know the Elixir world and like, oh, exciting. I get to contribute to all these things. Mm-hmm. And now I started up a Phoenix project and I think, I just I just want everything to kind of just be there for me. I, I, right. just, I just want to be able to pull any dependency I need. I don't want, I don't want to have to contribute to them anymore. Speaking of dependencies, just this is unrelated, but a, a semi-related story that I found really funny because I'm working on porting Crates.io over to Diesel, mm. and when we merged the first commit, that was just like set up the groundwork for for Diesel so that like people can port endpoints over. We weren't able to deploy, and the reason was there was a bug in the uh, Rust. Heroku build pack where it was um, all of the intermediate build artifacts were getting put in the final slug and diesel if you didn't have this bug changed the binary size by like 20k something like that not even something very very small but with the build artifacts it was like 10 15 megabytes and that was enough to put crates.io over the 300 megabyte slug size limit I was like, okay, wow, you were really close to the slug size limit. This bug must be, like, really bad. And I, and I, and I compared it with and without the bug. And the, bu- and the bug itself, with all of the intermediate build artifacts, it was only, like, 70 megs it was adding. So without that, they were still 230 meg slug size. I'm like, where on earth is that coming from? That is huge. Because it, it's not a big – I mean, it's, it, it's a decent-sized application, but it's yeah. not, like, that big. Yeah. The answer was node modules. <laughs> after compilation and minification all that it was like 170 something wow mm-hmm. just from ember and the few modules they were using there were so many dependencies There's going a down lot the graph. of copies of our trim <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just like, but it's like it's funny because we talk about dependencies as, because they're so great in rails and we're like oh but dependencies are terrible in javascript because there's so many and i find it interesting the dichotomy but the thing is if you just pull in rails as a dependency and you look at your gem file.lock and you just look at how many things you're actually getting it is so tiny compared to if you're if you're doing anything in javascript hmm. like just your build tool alone has hundreds of dependencies Right, but a lot of people would look at the Rails gem file dot lock and say that's a lot too, right? It kind sure, of no, it is. That's but... what I think when I see it. <laughs> <laughs> it definitely is, but it's just, it's just interesting, like how how different that is. I guess it's because the JavaScript folks just pull out more small gems or small packages. Yeah, I mean, I think Ltrim is an example of that. <laughs> right. Well, and also they yeah they have to make up for the standard library being not existent. Yeah. Right. 
Do you know there's no uh, way to consistently print something to the screen across like all of the different ways you can run JavaScript code? You mean like print it to the screen like if you're running it in a browser, it'll work, and if you're running it on a command line, it'll work? Right. Because on the command line, it's usually print. It, it differs right. based on if you're using like JSC or Rhino or uh, Node. Uh, it's usually print, right? But print in a print, print's a function. <laughs> prints a function prints a function that exists in the browser but what print uh, in the browser does is open a print dialog to print out the page that you're on <laughs> which I just given that print is like you know the really outdated term from back before monitors existed like I, it's, it's, it's true to its roots I, I don't know I found that really hilarious <laughs> anyway yeah JavaScript it's a thing <laughs> I just try to avoid it so I don't have to know about things like that yeah on the point of just like the of ecosystems, right? That is where, where Rust is really lacking. Because I, it's not that I don't recommend Rust to people, but when people are like, "So is Rust ready to be used in production yet?" and I usually answer like, "Depends on how much you're willing to write yourself." Mm-hmm. Because if you if you're going to use Rust today, you're going to be writing a lot of libraries that you need yourself, and hopefully open source those. And yeah, yeah. But it's just it it'll get there. It's 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 getting a lot closer. There's a lot more out there now than there was a year ago, which is uh, reassuring, but it's still not quite there yet. Yeah. Have you tried Rocket Out yet? I have, yeah. How was it? Good. Um, it needs time. There's a ton of stuff that just needs to get resolved. CSRF protection. Is Rock- um, Rocket is Sinatra, basically? It's or a little it bit more, more than Sinatra. It's, it's not. It, no, it's <laughs> like above Sinatra, but below Rails. Okay. It doesn't have an opinion on Rust. It's it's a more simplistic router than that, but mm-hmm. it does more for you than Sinatra would. I, I do think that the developer behind it seems to have the right priorities and understands like that certain things need to get done for it to be something that people are going to use. I mean, well, people might use it regardless because like, hey, it's a cool Rust web framework and then not understand that like building a web framework means there are a lot of security things that need to get handled. And if the framework doesn't handle them, you need to know how to handle these things. And most people don't. And and stuff like CSRF protection is going to be really interesting to see how they solve that because they don't have an opinion on how you deal with forms. Mm. Mm. So like how you get that token in there in an ergonomic way and have it handle rejection of invalid tokens or reset the session automatically, that'll be an interesting one to see. Um, but also things like signed and encrypted cookies, but yeah, I, I like it. I think it, I think it has potential. I think there's still a need for something that uh, is a little closer to the Rails level of the stack okay. and has a strong opinion on REST. I don't know what that looks like yet, but... Yet another web framework? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that is a repository that exists and had the results of some API spikes that, now that specialization is a thing, it can be reworked quite a bit, but I'm going to guess that somebody else is going to get to it before I do. <laughs> What have you been doing? Have you been doing anything else recently other than this Rust thing that you're really excited about, Matt? Not all that much. Well, I, I mean, this morning I started a Rust CLI testing library because it seems like we repeat the same support file in every single major yeah, which, CLI, which we've all basically just stolen from crates uh, from Cargo. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I submitted the pull request to add like my own version of it to Diesel, and you were like. Now nah, let's just use crates.io's version. <laughs> yeah. So have you released this crate? No, I, I literally ran Git in it this morning. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> Very recent, but I don't know. It seems it seems like something that'll that will help the CLI development community at least. Yeah. Because there's a lot of Rust CLIs out there. It'd actually be interesting to see something built into um, Clap. 
Yeah, yeah. I'm kind of surprised they don't already have like built-in testing right in there. What's Clap? Uh, that is the library that people usually use to build CLIs. Oh, okay. Or it's one of. I think it's probably the one that, that that's the go-to nowadays. Probably. There used to be I more. Doubt than anyone one. use get uses GetOps. Yeah, all. but basically it just generates like option parsers and mm -hmm. and cool. the stuff that Thor does for you basically. All right. What do you guys think of uh, Justin Searles's keynote this morning? I enjoyed it. I mean, I enjoy every talk I've ever seen of his. He just has a style that just goes along with what I like to see. Like, <laughs> yeah. like if I could instantly snap my fingers and become and have like a style of a of a known presenter, it would probably be his style. And you can tell that he spends a lot of time like he cares. And you could tell that even as he was taking his little Searles Briggs type test or whatever he called it. Did you guys take the test? I did take the test. What did you get? What was your result? I'm an F-A-L-T. Fault. Fault. I think actually I might be the same. I was not L, whatever the other. Leary and. You're naive? Yeah, naive. I'm naive. <laughs> <laughs> you're fant? Yeah. Yes, I am fant. That's what it was. All right. We'll, <laughs> we'll have to link to this in the show notes so the people have any idea what we're talking about. But it basically it was like Justin really as a tool to kind of drive his talk forward talked about various ways to like classify developers and yeah. it came down to like a myers-briggs type thing that spelled out salt for him which is you know intentional uh <laughs> but did you try it i did not no i really enjoyed the talk though so he was he was talking about well it, the test was all about identifying kind of who you are as a programmer and then improving on the processes and the the thoughts that lead you to your code so really self-improvement really and getting out of some of the bad cycles we're in and i noticed like listening to that talk i noticed in myself there there are periods of time where i'm really complacent and i'm not really pushing myself at all so i'm in the same exact patterns for better or for worse and then there, there are periods where i get really motivated and do a lot of introspection of you know how i build software and i think those are the times when you really grow beyond where you are not just like in language comprehension and code architecture but in how you work and how happy you are when you work mm -hmm. um so i think it's a really important thing and he's a fantastic speaker so right i think identifying yourself as a developer is important like i i, I you know i identify myself as tender love <laughs> <laughs> i also just really liked the approach that he showed like he didn't show us any code but he showed us like how he would break out the solution right and i was like okay that's a little much for me like that's just a little bit too much indirection or whatever right. for me mm -hmm. but like I would almost rather go that direction than the direction I typically see, which is like just using MVC and that's, you know, Rails MVC and that's it. And everything has to fit into one of those buckets. I do wish that because that, that is the second talk that I've seen where somebody mentioned that you don't have to use Active Record with Rails. I wish people would stop telling people that because then they'll know. <laughs> <laughs> but he also said you can use Active Record outside of Rails. That is true. That is true. <laughs> I don't know. But people are trying to put me out of a job at this conference. So I'm <laughs> It was also like at one point he talks about like writing wrappers around basically everything. And that's the part that I feel like at some point you had you have to balance like what is done in Rails versus what you would like to do, right? right. So like mm -hmm. if you have a user's index, right? Calling userfinder.all or something like that rather than just calling user.all, <laughs> right? Like it doesn't yeah. really get you anything other than confusion from people who are more familiar with like the latter approach. I mean, I do agree with it for certain types of dependencies, but yeah, you're not going to insulate yourself from Rails and right. you're not going to randomly switch from active record to SQL in an existing project. Right. But I did think, I thought the overall approach was solid. I yeah. would definitely prefer to see that over what I usually see. <laughs> <laughs> True. But I think for me, the happy path is somewhere in the middle of those two approaches. 
I liked what he said about uh, <laughs> make your objects or your wrappers way too small at the beginning because someone in the future <laughs> will come in and make them larger. Yeah. <laughs> I, I identified that I always hesitate to pull out a wrapper around like one line of code. Right. But it, it's a great point. It will get bigger in the future if you're doing any anything interesting in your business or in your application. Right. And just other people that don't have like the discipline for you to be like, oh, this is a different wrapper. They'll just put it in that one wrapper. But that's fine. Like at least it's wrapped, right? Because somebody earlier did the work of extracting this one line thing into a into a class. Right. Yeah. At least you added one to one rather than one to eight. Right. <laughs> eight is being kind. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything else you want to plug? I work for Procore Technologies. We're we're always hiring. So if you want to come work in sunny Santa Barbara. Procore.com slash jobs. Are you going to go to Concrete World? <laughs> world of, of Concrete? Concrete? That's, you know, that's where the real party is at. That's, <laughs> that's actually... I bet that is a really awesome conference for the record. Like, we were all <laughs> laughing. I bet that conference, like, everybody has a fantastic time, you know. <laughs> is, is, there, is there a conference in Santa Barbara? No, it's World of Concrete's usually in Vegas, I think. Okay. Yeah. So it's a big old party. I feel, like a, I feel like I missed something here. It's, did you oh, miss the you beginning of the morning? keynote? Yeah, I got there for the last third. I had to deal with getting the scooter. Right. Yeah, so the um, Procore Director of Engineering or VP of Engineering? Yeah, Director. He gave a talk about like why they were sponsoring RailsConf, and he talked about how like when Procore was initially launched as a Rails application, they launched it at the conference. <laughs> World, of World of Concrete. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that is pretty good. <laughs> All right. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Matt. Thanks for having me. Show notes for this episode can be found at bikeshed.fm slash 113. Thanks very much, and we'll see you next time.